way that one approaches uh, having a fight in a professional setting uh, is something that happens pretty rarely on Capitol Hill. When I was a staffer uh, on the Senate side, we would uh, routinely uh, spend kind of uh, sessions where there was something, you know, just boring happening on the floor, talking about who would win in a fight. And um, the general consensus was that uh, Pat Leahy was actually kind of an the 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 person likeliest to win in most fights because he had got a big frame. He had incredibly long arms. Uh, yeah, and uh, and his frame, like people don't quite understand. You know, you you get when you're up close to people, you don't necessarily see sort of like who's the most intimidating. Now, I would probably assume it's Tom Cotton. Um, because he just I think that people underrate the fact that that guy is just basically entirely muscle. Um, but but Mark Wiring. Wayne Mullen, Mark Wayne Mullen, uh, yeah, no, that's the thing with cotton. he's he's got an incredibly long torso. He's wiry. He's like that that really works like in in a fight. Um, but but Mark Wayne Mullen is not the senator I would pick to tangle with in any respect <laughs> because because not only is that guy basically a Tasmanian devil, it's it's he is he is I mean that guy has zero percent body fat. He is he is entirely muscle. He he just like the the idea that 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 teamster uh, blob would survive for even more than like 90 seconds or so in, in any kind of person, in any kind of physical conflict just boggles my mind. And so the fact that he decided that this is the guy that he wants to just start needling, it, it's a huge, huge miscalculation in terms of guy willing to fight and guy capable of fighting <laughs> in terms of, you know, like pick any other of the 99 senators or maybe 98 if you include Cotton in the mix, you know, uh, maybe maybe 97 Thunes probably up there, but it's but it's still, you know. This is just not a not a good choice on the part of that Teamster guy. So M- Mullen, I mean, there's a lot that I want to say about this. One, Leahy, that's a good call. I wouldn't have thought about that, but obviously he's a big, rangy guy. You know, we could get into NFL draft combine talk here. Yeah. Um, you know, he was also in Batman. I don't know if, you know, yes. so Christopher Nolan, you have to assume he's in, Christopher he's Nolan in multiple Batmans, in fact. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> and you have to assume any, I think he might be in Justice League and st- he's he's like a big comic super fan. Yeah. But you have to assume Christopher Nolan knows what he's doing when he casts a, a role like that. So that's a good call. You know, Cotton makes sense too. Obviously, got the military background. Um, Mullen, I was surprised he doesn't have a military background background he's just kind of a you know uh oklahoma gun guy um but you know and and i I do i want to give uh o'brien a little bit more credit than you do he's a teamster right i don't know if you know anything about that particular organization (laughs) to quote rodney Dangerfield, it ain't run by the boy scouts right um so you know he's a big he's a big teamster he's a season two of the wire stevedore kind of guy potentially a potentially a tough guy um but to me and i said this to you immediately when it happened to me the giveaway was when mullen stands up and he reaches for his wedding wedding band and that is the (laughs) universal sign of a guy who actually wants to fight and who's been in a fight and understands that even if you win a fight 
you know, fist fights are a lot. You know, I, I am not a, a a tough guy. I've been in two or three fist fights my entire life. One of them was in seventh grade. Um, but you know, anyone who's been in a fight and actually hit somebody or been hit by somebody understands that it's a, a little bit different than it usually plays out in movies or on TV. And one of the things is, even if you win that fight, if you hit somebody, you know, with a with a left hand and you're wearing a wedding wedding band, you're going to be in a lot of pain in about an hour because your hand's going to swell up. And uh, for for a hot minute, when I was in my uh, late teens, early twenties, I volunteered at the ambulance corps in my town. And the worst thing that we would see, one of the worst things we would see, is one of these guys with a titanium or tungsten or other rare metal, um, super hard wedding band or even platinum, um, and they were harder to cut off than the gold bands. You could you could use a saw to cut cut off the gold bands, but you know, a tungsten band or, or a titanium band, you needed like special equipment. And these guys were getting a barroom brawls and it was gross. I'll just say that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that, that seeing Mullen do that, I thought this guy actually wants to fight. I think they both did. I think <laughs> if, I, I think if, if Bernie Sanders hadn't stepped in and to be serious, like I give Bernie Sanders a lot of credit. He was, he wasn't discombobulated. He acted like he was not supposed surprised that this was happening but he still interceded pretty quickly and he said you're a united states senator you know to uh <laughs> Mullen, which i thought was really funny but he kept it he kept it cool he he calmed people down i thought he wasn't like unnecessarily antagonistic to mullen which i think he understood he was dealing with a race car in the red and uh and he and he he kept it together so i'm glad it didn't descend into it but the, but what i was gonna say is like I think if 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 Sanders had not stepped in, there absolutely would have been a fight in the improvised <laughs> octagon between the the you know the the raised dais and the and the witness table. So so I completely agree with you. Uh, I I also think that Bernie Sanders would make an excellent ref in that situation. <laughs> you know, all right, we're going to call it. We're going to call it. It's, it's gonna yeah, be I a want a clean fight, fight gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of millionaires and billionaires in the audience. <laughs> it it, it would have been great to see the, the thing. There are a couple of the things emerging from it. First off, I would encourage anyone uh, who has not read my profile of Mark Wayne Mullen, which I believe is still the only profile that has been done of him since he became a U.S. Senator. Uh, you can find it at the Spectator. It is called Mark Wayne Mullen Meet the Senate's Stoic Brawler, um, and uh, you know it is important to keep in mind he is an undefeated uh, former MMA guy who was a uh, a college champ uh, in wrestling and who has taught his sons uh, to wrestle uh, in uh, and they are very intimidating young men, uh, and it's it's something that he takes very seriously. Uh, so I absolutely believe that he was ready to go, um, but but I also think that. One of the things that came to mind after this was, I think, I think that actually he would have been immune from any kind of prosecution for what he did to that to that Teamster guy, uh, based on the the uh, you know speech and debate clause of the Senate. So I don't know that for a fact. I think we'd have to go back to the Sumner caning uh, to have any kind of precedent for this. Uh, but after yeah. that, uh, you know, the guy who did that, uh, he was not prosecuted. He was censured, um, but he was not expelled from the body, and he was not uh, he was not legally, uh, you know, ha had no ramifications uh, due to him uh, due to you know obviously you know uh, pushing another you know member of the body to the you know the prospects of actual death. So I think that in this situation, if 
if Mark Wayne Mullen had gone down into that into that um, you know makeshift octagon, as you say, uh, and taken apart that Teamster guy, uh, I think that actually he would have been immune from prosecution. Which would, I think that's right. Which would be pretty a pretty entertaining thing to see play out. Yeah, I think that's right. It's funny. I mean, you know, the obligatory Trump comp, but the reason the founders, I mean, if I recall my Federalist and my founding documents uh, well enough, the reason the founders did that was a worry about factionalism and a worry that you would weaponize, you would weaponize uh, law enforcement against your opponent by, for instance, having them arrested while they were attempting to advance a measure or pass a bill. Um, so the idea of it was that you, while you were doing the the state's business, someone will write an email, I'm sure, and correct me. But if I recall, it's the idea is that while you were doing the the republic's business, you were immune, like actually on the floor um, inside the Capitol building um, doing the government's business. You were immune. So I, there could be a very narrow reading of that, which is to say that, you know, you lose that immunity when you leave the building or when the state's business is done, the, the government's business is done. But, you know, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I will say this, <clears throat> the Preston, I actually have a, 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 a painting, a, um, a newspaper drawing of the Preston. Oh, the, the, yes, uh, the, 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 the famous, the famous uh, uh, one. Yes, I assume. Yeah. Uh, in my yeah. house, I, it was, it was a, a very interesting and, um, you know, moment in American history, obviously, but much more recently, you had you had Zell Miller. That's what I thought of. Yep. Where he misunderstood was it was it Chris Matthews? I think he misunderstood a Chris Matthews question. He's getting on in years. Zell Miller, for those who don't know, was one of the last conservative Southern Democrats. You know, um, the kind of uh, mirror image of the main ladies. Um, and he, it was either 2004 or I think it was 2004 RNC, and he had made waves. Yes. Uh, you know, by attending it. And, um, and he, he misunderstood a question. I think it was from Chris Matthews and he got really heated and he basically challenged Chris Matthews to a duel on live TV, which was whoever it was. He challenged some talking head to a duel on live TV, which was great. But again, it reminded me of a serious point, which is so much of this, um, so much of this internet tough guy or, or pretend tough guy, vitriol and anyone who spends too much time on on twitter i think it can be guilty of it um is is a fa the fact that like there's no never any real world consequences for it and it just keeps building and building and building and you, you know and people create these sort of um this this mythologized mythologized version of themselves where they're much tougher than they actually are and the thing that that the miller incident and the mark wayne mullen incident get at is you know, it might actually be good, like honest to God, good if, you know, some of these uh, beefs were settled with a couple of, you know, swollen cheekbones. Well, um, well yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten, ten paces at dawn. No, I, I feel like the, the so, by the way, you are you are correctly recollecting this. It was after the 2004 speech that he gave to the RNC. Zell Miller went on hardball. And uh, and he said, I wish we lived in the days when you could challenge a person to a duel. That would be pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I believe it was actually yeah. I, I would duel you. Was, uh... <laughs> yeah. And it was the same kind of equities. It was the same kind of equities because you had this smarmy Irish Yankee and uh, and and the southern guy, you know, and so. Yeah, I think it'd be good though. I'm not. I'm not. I, I don't think pistols at dawn. But you know what? Like you know, a one three minute round with a bow tied, 
Bernie Sanders as the official, you know, might cool cool people's blood a little. No, well, the, the thing that the thing is, you know, it, it does actually what you get after a good fight like that uh, is there is sort of a catharsis. There's a you know, there's yeah, totally. a release that comes out of it of of like, okay, you know, I, I gave him what for. And uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that there should be a, a little more, you know, kind of uh, Marcus of Queensbury rules, you know, sort of uh, yeah. could could actually, uh, if injected in the in the proper way, uh, lead lead to perhaps, uh, uh, you know, once you've gone once you've gone through that together, you've gone through it together, and you you have that shared feeling of of. Uh, you know, le- getting your blood back down. Let's put it that way. Well, uh, it's it like the great American uh, Italian American political theorist uh, Pete Clemenza said. You know, the bad blood builds up, and every ten years or so, you need to have a you know war to settle it out. It just happens. <laughs> you know, I, I think maybe, maybe the brass knuckles could be be uh, behind the uh, the pull box on the toilet. <laughs> I, I, the thing the thing is to, you know, and this is something that I think we have to keep in mind. We have. Uh, you know, Mark Wayne went on uh, CNN uh, and, uh, you know, and invoked the the fact that, you know, Andrew Jackson, you know, was uh, challenged or participated in as many as nine different duels uh, over the course of his life. Um, and, uh, and Tana Bash's immediate response of Andrew Jackson was not a good guy. I was so offended by that. <laughs> like it was just like, wait, wait, what are you talking about? No, you don't get to just say that. Like, I mean, you can say, I don't know, uh, I've got issues with his with his native relocation policy, <laughs> but it's also it's like, wait a minute, you don't just get to like paint with a broad brush that like Andrew Jackson was not a good guy. Are you kidding? He's a freaking American hero. You know, it's like it's, we we have his we have his statue in Lafayette Square for a reason. It's I don't well, know. You can't- you can't trust. I mean, obviously, all the founders are 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 now suspect, and it and it is it is acceptable in that in that class to say he's to just sort of automatically say he's not a good guy. What I would say is that he was a complicated guy. That he might not have been a good guy, but he was a great man, and those are two very different things. And unfortunately, it's the kind of contraposition that the average Zoomer slash CNN talking head cannot hold in their brain and, and successfully function, you know, but there are such things as, you know, people with contradictory traits, characteristics, values, experiences who did some great things and then did some trail of tearsy kind of things. Yeah. Um, um, but that's but a level the, of the, subtlety. <laughs> but one last Jackson thing, because I think it's great in this instance is uh, one of the guys you fought a duel with, which, with whom Jackson had a bullet from this guy's gun in his body for the rest of his life uh, was a, you know, was a future Senator uh, Thomas Hart Benton who became Jackson's strongest ally in the Senate when Jackson <laughs> yes. was president. So, I mean, you know, fisticuffs can lead the friendship. <laughs> I, I, I love that. Uh, I love that you invoked that, that John. And I would also encourage everybody, if you've not uh, read it, HW brands biography of Andrew Jackson, uh, which is about Jackson, but it's also about sort of this particular period in the kind of post-founding America that is fascinating, uh, is a phenomenal read, and I, I recommend it to everyone. So this is Thunderdome, and we are talking about a, a number of different things today, but I think that we have to start off uh, with the the great unleashing in the wake of last week's elections and uh, the debate that followed of, I think, open warfare between candidates 
uh, and the head of the RNC, Ronna Romney McDaniel, is uh, the the title of the uh, Politico article uh, today about her. Uh, Ronna McDaniel is under siege, and her critics concede likely to survive. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that's true, uh, but it, there is definitely something's been broken open here that was simmering below the surface uh, for quite some time in terms of resentment towards uh, McDaniel and her approach uh, at the RNC. Uh, and now there is even, you know, private reports that Donald Trump, her most emphatic backer uh, through all of this, uh, has soured on her as well. Gentlemen, what are your thoughts on the situation as it relates to Ronna Romney McDaniel? Well, I'm going to start just because I think I know less about this than maybe maybe John does. But so uh, my, so my view is I think she probably from where I sit today, I think she probably will survive. I think it'll be largely independent, largely independent of Trump, whose influence in these things I, I actually think is a little bit overrated just because. Everyone knows that his relationship with everyone up to and including his own children is transactional and that, you know, he might be her biggest defender, whatever. But as soon as he thinks that she's a liability, he'll he'll happily cut her loose. I think inertia and probably sort of inter-party alliances and things like that, if anything, will will slow it down. But my theory on why this is happening and even why someone like Ramaswamy is is leading with the the criticism is that it's um sublimated rage at trump because after all you know we've talked about before um you know the rnc has become uniquely a vehicle not of the party or of, of a broad coalition within the party but uniquely a vehicle of, of trump and his functionaries and i think you see some overt evidence of that in things like um you know the 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 debate, you know, organization and, um, and, and rules about what, what candidates, you know, can and can't do, um, independent of, of RNC sanctioned events. And I think, you know, the candidates are in a tough spot because especially ones like Ramaswamy who are trying, you know, aiming for the Trump vote, you know, can overtly say that. So, so she's a safe, object a kind of um designated whipping boy um in in kind of the uh, a fairly accurate use of that that uh metaphor um a, a whipping boy for trump because you can't go after trump in, in that way or even the trumpification of the rnc because a lot of gop primary voters don't think that's a bad thing well um, can i can i just insert just uh, some some practical mm -hmm. info uh one is uh mcdaniel is the longest serving chair of the rnc um, in basically its entire existence, um, it's it's more than a century um, that since they've had a, a chair who's been around this long, uh, and she uh, is also in a position where you know that there were there were fifty five members who voted against her in uh, January in terms of her reelection, uh, and it would take two thirds of the one hundred and sixty eight committee uh, members uh, to oust her. So just to sort of uh, set the practical, yeah. Uh, uh, situation here. John, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it sort of, I, I'm, st I'm still very upset about the, the RNC's failure to engage in Virginia. Um, obviously, you know, what was it? About 2,000 votes <laughs> spread across the entire state and the right races, you know, would give Glenn Youngkin a, a trifecta. And again, credit to him for doing everything he could to deliver majorities and it, you know obviously fell short uh they picked up a seat in the senate um 
I, I think Dan's right that you know that the RNC becomes kind of a convenient target for uh, Republican frustration for for losing elections. Um, it, you know, and it's it's downstream of you know it can't be Trump's fault, so it's got to be someone's fault. But at the same, you know, and I, I think part of that is misguided, just because I think it you know misunderstands what the RNC does, which is really just kind of like a clearinghouse for both money and some you know kind of back office kind of grassroots machinery, you know, voter files, things like that. Uh, but, you know, I, I also don't know what, and we've had this conversation before, I don't know what she's done to distinguish herself. I mean, even, even if it's, even if it's, you know, not her fault, you know, even, you know, if a, if, if a, you know, a coach keeps having losing seasons, you know, even if it's, you know, the general manager is, you know, sticking them with bad players, you know, at some point you just got to make a change to, to make a change. Uh, you know, I think as you know, as we've seen, you know, obviously there, you know, that article, you know, there was, oh, you know, there'd be concerns about switching in the middle of presidential cycle. Well, yeah, well, I don't think that, you know, what happened with Kevin McCarthy was, I don't think was a good move for for anybody on the Republican side, and I think we'd be better off if he was still speaker. Which is, you know, nothing against Mike Johnson, who sounds like a really good guy by all accounts, but you know, the concern was like, oh, the fundraising was going to drop off, and it will to some extent, but. Johnson's already raising substantially more money. I, I think that, you know, these these jobs sort of generate to some extent. If you get a a, a good enough person in them, their their own, you know, a, the the job itself becomes a, a a well of gravity to pull in resources. Um, yeah, I, but, I think I think the problem really is that McDaniel has done nothing to distinguish herself. She's presided over one cycle after another where uh, things have been disappointing. And frankly, I think that she has done a very poor job of owning it uh, or of having any kind of rational storyline for why things are going to get better under her leadership. I have yet to hear her say anything that convinces me that, hey, we're going through these challenges as a Republican Party, but we're figuring it out. And we have a lot to be optimistic about going forward because of X, Y, Z. Uh, as opposed to just saying uh, what she's been saying on television and otherwise, which is that, oh, I'm focused on how bad Joe Biden is, and that's what I'm talking about, and that's what I'm focused on. And any Republicans who criticize me, they're they're taking their eye off the ball by not paying attention to how bad Joe Biden is, which is a load of crap. I mean, that's just that's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, so um, it, I I just don't think that there's any confidence, or anybody should have any confidence. Uh, in her in terms of going into, uh, you know, next year. And I think, you know, if you come at the end of the day uh, and basically, uh, you know, say, what what is it that McDaniel is giving us in this cycle? It's been, you know, a, a really a sloppily organized series of debates um, with a, you know, a, a, frankly, you know, much lower thresholds to meet than they ought to have been from the get go. Um, with a, a lot of, I think, frustration on that side. And then on the flip side, she's frustrated all of the Trump fans who basically think that none of these debates should be happening anyway. Um, yeah, well, so- it, it raises, sorry, it just it raises the question again of what the Republican Party wants. And the only bar by which she has been a success, you could argue, to play like extreme devil's advocate, is that she has purified the party if from a point of view of, of those types of folks like she's purified the party of a lot of moderates um and a lot of uh you know suburban people who can win in suburban and 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 biden plus three or plus four districts so you know by that measure maybe that's why there weren't 100 
you know, odd votes in the RNC to, to oust her in January because they view that mission as more important. I don't I don't think that's it at all. I, I think, and again, I'm, I'm not somebody that's ever been close to sort of the the RNC practices, but understand that it's it's a it's a club, right? The same, you know, it's a it's the you know sort of a student council election, and she was one of the kids that's been on student council for years, right? You know that she was you know Ronna Romney McDaniel back when her uncle was you know running for president, and then it became you know after you know Trump's ascendancy, you know, un- inconvenient to to have the Romney part in there, but you know she was a state party chair in Michigan. She was she was a she was an insider you know, for, for you know, lack of a better word. Um, and, you know, whether it's with the contracts with vendors or whether it's with, you know, the power structure with other committee members, you know, she, she's, she's part of it. So, you know, people aren't going to want to upset the apple cart. I also think that, Dan, the ability of the RNC to dictate who candidates are in races is about zero. Um, yeah. You know, and, and even beyond that, and we started to see a little bit of a shift this cycle from the Senate committee, and I think it's all for the good. Even the the you know the NRSC or the NRCC, the you know the federal committees for the the House and the Senate, have been especially in safe seats, pretty hands, especially on the House side, pretty hands off on you know on, on dictating candidates. I think often to their detriment. But I mean the the RNC the RNC is basically there to you know make sure the back office stuff happens, and that's kind of the extent of it. The, so uh, who, whoever's sitting in that chair, to some degree, as long as they're a competent administrator, it doesn't really matter. The the invitation extended from Laura Ingram uh, to have a matchup uh, between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley on her show. Um, uh, you know, very much wanting to sort of see the debate happen that I think a lot of people would like to see. Um, that's something that Ron DeSantis has already responded to in the affirmative. Obviously, these types of of invitations have led to threats from the RNC uh, about participating in non-sanctioned uh, events. But the simple fact that the next debate is going to be aired on uh, from Tuscaloosa on News Nation, a uh, a channel that not a lot of people are able to find um, and that uh, typically rates well below, you know, not just uh, the major uh, cable networks, but also below uh, CNBC and Fox Business. Uh, is to me just kind of an indication that like, you know, we're only doing this because we feel like we have to. Um, and, and that to me is, is itself an indictment of, of this RNC and it's a sort of joke of, uh, of uh, approach to having an actual approach that's about winning election or winning, winning elections or winning over new voters. Um, I do want to uh, ask you a little bit about this Nikki Haley experience over the past week uh with uh, this social media uh, conversation that has been uh getting criticized not just from you know people who like Ron DeSantis or people who like Donald Trump people who like Vivek uh but also from people who I think would naturally be inclined to like Nikki um she basically said that that every person on social media should be verified with their real name uh, and said that it's a national security threat uh, that people don't do that. Personally, I think that this is something that's very silly because it's not something that a, that a president could even do. Um, but it has been getting a lot of criticism, including from uh, people like Charles Cook at, at uh, National Review and and other people who are you know tend to be uh, fans of of, of Nikki generally. Uh, what are your thoughts on on this, John? So I. I... I'm probably tend more towards the critics and realize that there'll be enormous downsides to this, but 
it's it's one of those things that I think if you put yourself maybe in the shoes of like a suburbanite of yeah the discourse because right it's both national security and sort of the tone of the discourse and you do have people you know hiding behind um you know hiding behind ridiculous names that are saying some pretty awful things um which you know again is it's one of those things where you know people free speech is great until it you know offends you or you know offends any of us um I don't, I don't know what sort of prompted it. I, you know, I think if you want to, if you want to sort of go with that stuff, I think going at TikTok makes a whole lot more sense um, now that it's basically a, seems to be a fan site for Osama bin Laden. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what her, her, her calculus necessarily was there. I mean, if you want to say that you want to lean on Twitter or whoever to push out foreign bots or that you want to, you know, sort of crack down on foreign tampering on these websites. I think there's a much better case to be made there. Uh, but I mean, she, I think she opened up a, you know, a line of attack. Now, w- one that I don't know that I don't know a whole lot of voters other than people that have, you know, ridiculous handles on, on these sites, um, or their votes are necessarily be swayed by this, but I mean, it does create an unnecessarily ex- exposes her to a line of attack from, from DeSantis on kind of first principles arguments, but um, you know, I think she's priority. I think start starting to backtrack on this. And yeah, I think this is going to go away in a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know what calculus or focus group or polling or brainstorming session in her, in her, um, you know, brain trust um, led, led to this. It seemed like a very unnecessary fight to pick and not a kitchen table issue, as John said, and, and also just not particularly well thought out or well articulated. So I, I, I won't defend her on sort of political or campaign grounds at all, but I, but I actually think if she's suggesting what I think she is, which I think some people are willfully misreading, I think others get it and still don't like it, but some people just don't get it. If she's suggesting what I think she is, it's not that um, it's not that everyone should be forced to post under their real name. And, and and can't express speech anonymously, but rather that everyone with an account at these companies, um, the companies have to know who they are. So mm-hmm. it would work a little bit like IP addresses, um, uh, you know, I think currently work, which is to say your IS, your internet service provider knows what your IP address is. You can do things like use VPNs or whatever and still anonymize yourself to an extent. But if the FBI or the local police force thinks you're, pl- you're plotting a terror attack, or you're part of a web of Russian hackers trying to do election interference, they can subpoena or even just ask very nicely the the ISP in that case to 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 match a, a name to an IP address. Um, and I think I think that's what Haley's talking about, which I actually don't have that much of a problem with, to be honest with you. I mean, I think that the pro- that, that the effect that it has on speech would be similar to the effect that the fact that your ISP knows your your IP address and your self-service provider can read your text messages if they want to. Yeah. I think those things currently exist. And anyway, so I won't get, to, I won't go too far down the rabbit hole on the merits. I think it's a little overblown, but I can't defend her on political grounds. It seems a stupid fight. It seemed to unify as, as, as uh, Ben suggested, all of her enemies against her. It was like an easy alley-oop layup dunk, whatever you want against her. And she's the surging candidate. And so you saw this spontaneous pile on, well, people who don't want to see her numbers go up. Well, uh, two things. First off, if you actually look at her polling numbers, she actually is not surging. Uh, she is surging in the sense that, like, in the mindset of people, she clearly has become, you know, the the third ranked candidate. 
Um, but her numbers are actually basically steady. She's had like a, a, a slight tick up, but it's very slight. Um, where she is definitely surging, though, is with money. Uh, Spencer Zwick uh, from uh, the Mitt Romney 2012 team is joining her fundraising team this week. Uh, and uh, Ken Griffin has been making noises like he's going to come in and uh, and back her. Uh, Jamie Dimon uh, had a had a sit down with her. Uh, and uh, basically said nothing but nice things. There's a, there's a very strong possibility that I think she's going to be the donor candidate, the big dollar candidate um, going into uh, the coming uh, month and a half when you actually are going to see, you know, at the end of it, uh, actual votes start getting counted. Um, and so from my perspective, I think that that's something that's both good and bad for Haley. Uh, it's it's good in the sense that it gives her more resources. She's going to be, you know, presumably up on a lot more, uh, you know, TV ads and the like. Uh, at the same time, it's not necessarily a good thing to be the darling of donors uh, inside of a contest in which that's viewed uh, as, you know, the the sort of indication that you are compromised or that you're uh, swamp friendly. Uh, and that's something that I think has been circling around Haley for a while in in part and I've said this before undeserved uh because she she even though she fits a lot of the uh the different things that fall into that category uh she actually hasn't been in DC or really around you know politics since before you know Ron DeSantis was a member of Congress so it's it's just uh it's it's kind of a a, a misapplication of that um do you think that it helps her or hurts her uh to have this type of money attention I think it helps. I, I think that I think that momentum is such a huge part. The, the perception of momentum is so important. Everyone mm -hmm. wants to be on a winning team. I, I think we all three of us agree that that Trump is overwhelmingly likely to be the GOP nominee. But if Ron DeSantis wins Iowa, you know, it's the you see that blip of life on the you know on sort of the political EKG machine and. You know, it's the it's you know, Rocky Four where he you know cuts Drago. The Russians cut. He bleeds. He's not a machine. He's a man. I, I think a you want the resources. You want to be able to get your message up and do whatever you feel like you need to do with you know with grassroots and you know door to door and getting your voters out. But uh, you know, I, I guess it depends on you know how much will whether it's you know conservative media or Trump. Uh, make an issue out of this, and I, I don't know. I mean, maybe some conservative media. You know, DeSantis was courting, obviously, a lot of these same people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think Trump is happy to take anybody's money, probably. Um, so, I, again, I, I, it's the the perception of you being on the ascent instead of the descent. I think is is enormously. I think it is helpful among sort of the chattering classes, though. I, you know, probably less so among sort of you know, primary voter in Iowa or New Hampshire or what have you. I just, the only thing, and, and uh, Dan, I want to hear from you too, but the only thing that I would say is that donors often have stupid ideas about who can win and who can prevail. Uh, and, you know, to me, the, the, the one negative for Haley is that, you know, if she's trying to cast herself as being like, I am all-inclusive, big tent, I'm, I'm donor-friendly, but I'm also grassroots-friendly, um, then I think that some of this is a little too blatant and out there uh, to be, uh, you know, to to help her case uh, in that category. And it helps, I think, DeSantis to be able to say, 
you know, hey, I'm I'm the guy in touch with the grassroots. You know, I'm I'm not necessarily beholden to these big money guys. But you know, uh, as as John points out, it's good to be ascendant. Yeah, and and I it's it's funny when we did this gets to a this question gets to a long standing kind of disagreement between the two of you on one hand and me on the other about Haley that I think you know is probably superficial. It's not deep, but if you remember months ago when we played that game. Ben and John, where we we took turns inhabiting the mindset of the different GOP candidates and and asked the question, why are you in this race? My view on Haley was that she was in this race because she conceives of herself as kind of the perfect vehicle for, you know, the the various forces among the donor class and the, you know, intelligentsia on the right and the old establishment. Um, you know, what, how, use whatever epithet you want, neocon, what, you know, there's lots of them hurled better. And that that was what the, her reason for being in the race, because she saw herself as this vehicle for all those forces. And you guys, I think, rightfully, to 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 the extent, you know, that it's that's relevant to this question, rightfully pointed out, as you just did now, Ben, that she's not, it's not really fair to call her an establishment feature, given her actual ascent, you know, in South Carolina politics, yada, yada, yada. But I guess I guess my defense is, uh, you know, it's more about vibes and the vibes she's putting off. Certainly yeah. at this point are, you know, are establishmenty, um, And I think that's what you're seeing here. So I I I would have predicted I would have put a significant amount of money. In fact, that some of the names you just mentioned in the GOP donor class would end up back in Haley. Like I would have bet a lot of money. So I feel mm. utterly redeemed there. What I did not see was that they would have something to actually hang their hat on. I assume that they would back her when she was completely stagnant and in third or fourth place consistently and not having any kind of media moment, not having any kind of buzz. So the thing I didn't see coming is that she did make a little bit of a push for herself and become a little more relevant and does have some of that momentum John talked yeah. about. So I, I guess I, I, I sort of square the circle just real quickly by saying, yeah. I, I don't know that the art that Ben and my perspective and yours are necessarily completely at odds. I think that, I think the party has changed. And I think that she was I, I, almost a proto tea partier, but as you see now, some of the tea party wave guys that were in Congress are now leadership, you know, kind mm -hmm. of adjacent guys. And the, the, where the boundaries of being an insurgent are has changed dramatically in 10 or 15 years. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're completely right about that. Um, to close us out, uh, there's, I think we got to talk about third party situation. Um, obviously, the announcement from Joe Manchin last week that he wasn't going to run for re-election uh, is something that I think a lot of us have anticipated for a while. The tea leaves are already there. Uh, but what was surprising to me was that he immediately pivoted to saying uh, that he would be traveling around the country and and speaking out about you know, finding if there's interest to, to mobilize the middle or whatever he said. Um, I think that that's something that is, you know, I thought it might take a little bit more cajoling for him to uh, to go down that path. But it seems very clear that no labels is uh, interested in having him as their candidate, um, that they would pair him presumably with some uh, Republican, either, you know, recently retired or someone who's uh, who's younger. There was a push made for uh, from some, uh, I don't know, some idiot uh, thought that there would be a good idea to to run Mitt Romney on a ticket with Joe Manchin, which is just two people who would absolutely hate each other. You know uh, who the perfect yeah. guy is for him? Is Rob yeah. Portman. Rob Portman. Oh, really? That, I think so. I, mean, I, I could see that. 
uh, I, I personally think he needs someone younger and female. Um, uh, but that's, uh, you know, uh, I, that's it's just, also Ohio and West Virginia are kind of, you know, you're kind of putting a hat on a hat. Yeah, yeah you know, but I mean, cold. Tennessee and Ar- Tennessee and Arkansas worked out OK. And, yeah. you know, in the past, <laughs> Texas and Wyoming. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I think the, the thing that's interesting, too, is that, like, um, you know, it, what he almost actually actually, uh, if you want to get even more proximity than that, Barbara Comstock. <laughs> so um you know i i just think that this is a uh this is a situation where i think mansion's potential is very strong but we also have to consider the fact that at least you know in in the in the you know q poll and in a number of other polls that are out there you know rfk jr has now become the first third party candidate since ross perot to exceed 20 percent um, and so the appetite is definitely there, but I'm curious how you think that's going to play out in the sense that it, it, let's assume as I've been advocating for a year now, let's assume that Joe Manchin is on most ballots, uh, not, not all perhaps, but, but most ballots, he's, he, let's say he's on the ballot in 40 States. Um, how does that play out? Does he actually have a shot of winning a state? Does he take more from one side or the other? Um, I, I had a uh, a a nice text uh, when I wrote about this at the Spectator from a uh, friend of the show and and podcast subscriber Paul Manafort, uh, who said that my analysis was dead on, but that he thought that that uh, Mansion uh, is if he runs that Mansion will uh, ultimately be uh, the knife in the in the back of Joe Biden. That basically he hurts Biden a lot more than he hurts Trump. I'm not sure I agree with that. Um, what do you all think? I think I'd probably be inclined more to your take on that. And I think it's to be interesting. I just had this, this conversation with a you know, member of Congress a few days ago, just sort of positing. And, and I say Portman just because you have somebody who is socially center, right? But not, again, somebody that the vibes of fiscal responsibility, but working across the aisle, um, you know, sort of a more social policy centrism to soft, right? Like, I think that those guys, I just like the vibes, I think, feel right together. And Portman at, in his mid 60s is relatively young compared to a lot of the other people that are in the race. I think that the ceiling for Mansion and you know uh, whoever his running mate is is way higher than it is for because I, I think that he is a credible vessel uh, for discontent with the choices of of Trump and Biden because um, I, I think you could I guess the question is isn't not necessarily where the sort of never Trump vote is but the uh, Trump vote goes. Mm-hmm. Are they willing to? And I think part of it ends up being if Manchin is able to look like a actual vi- you is there a jailbreak to somebody like Manchin, particularly if it's a to Republicans not offensive VP nominee with him of saying, "Hey, this guy can win," and like you know, for better or worse, it's not going to be the worst four years. Like he's he's a sane guy that you know doesn't do stuff you know maybe half the time that I like, but you know it's he's you know, his faculties are all still there and it's going to be, it's going to be okay. Um, we're, I, I just, I, I still believe that. And, and again, I guess he's, he has ascended in the polls, but I still think Kennedy is close to his high watermark. And I think with the money that's going to be behind a guy like Joe Manchin, can he win a state? I don't know, but does it, does he make, does he have an impactful, because he's a guy that can basically punch on both directions and, 
you know, what, 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 you know, what the Trump or Biden say about him, you know, and the things that they say about him are things that are going to appeal to a bunch of voters. Um, but I, I tend to think that he is probably more of an outlet for, um, for probably frustrated Republicans, you know, for the, you know, what percentage of that 40% that Trump doesn't have in the primary, a chunk of them probably look at Manchin. I think a lot of the Manchin voters on the Democratic side, um, are probably, you know, not Democrats at this point, or it's a small, right. But if you're talking about the disaffected younger progressive voters, Joe Manchin ain't their guy. I mean, maybe they go to a Kennedy, but probably end up staying home with Biden. So I, I think he probably takes more away from Trump, but that's a national level. And I think you'd have to think about it more on a state by state basis. And it gets real interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so Kennedy, I think, is a is a name recognition phenomenon to a large extent to the extent that it's more than his name it's the fact that he's been a gadfly for 20 years and kennedy is not a centrist right we moderate centrist these outsider these terms get used interchangeably a lot and to you know and and in a way that hurts analysis i mean kennedy is is kind of not if you think about the two by two matrix uh, that people, you know, that pass around on the internet, people used to define their ideology, um, you know, authoritarian, libertarian, you know, le- left, right, whatever. He's not anywhere on that two by two matrix. You need to add a dimension, a third dimension or a fifth dimension or whatever. He's just a, he's a, he's, he's a, a wacky guy with wacky ideas, some of which are defensible, uh, some of which are not defensible. I think a lot of it is about his personal effect his name recognition and his, the brand that he's built up with books and uh, TV appearances and stuff over the years, very similar to Trump in, in that respect, although, and with somewhat of an overlapping constituency, I cannot see a guy um, who, especially if he's going to end up on a debate stage and if he gets asked about some of his wacky views on things, I cannot see that guy getting 20, 22% of the vote. Um, I, I mansion is a different cat because we all know we're beltway creatures and we all know who Joe Manchin is. I'm just not sure um, the depth of the broader voting public public's knowledge of this guy. And also I'm not sure when they get to know him, it's kind of a weird Schrodinger's candidate kind of question, because when they get to know Joe Manchin, will they view him as a centrist? Certainly democratic activists who know him do not view him as a centrist. I mean, they know that he votes with them uh, and that he voted with them in the Senate but they view him as sort of constantly treacherous as natural instincts are basically center right. And they don't view him that way. So how will Joe, you know, Joey bag of donuts, Joe six pack, John Q public view him when they get to know him, will it be as a sensible third party guy or will it be something more like uh, something more like generic Republican? You know, I, I can kind of see it going that way too, but I do think we're set up if both those guys end up running and have credible machinery and, end up on a lot of ballots, you know, it's like got big election of 1860 kind of, you know, vibes. And, 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 uh, you know, that was, that was interesting and unpredictable and, and having the, that fourth candidate really did, you know, matter in that case, even though, um, you know, I think bell won one electoral vote or whatever it was history's on, you know, so, but so, I mean, you know, certainly the more candidates you have, the more fractured the vote gets, the more chaotic, the result comes. So, and that's what I've been saying all along is like the main, the main result here of third party candidates, I think is not going to be that one of those two guys wins. I still think we're in 90, 10 or 80, 20, that it's either Biden or, or Trump. 
but it's chaos and it, and it makes the polling harder to interpret and it makes guessing what's going to happen between those top two harder to do. Here, so here's a, here's an interesting, you know, Ben, I think you asked, is there a state? I could conceivably see Joe Manton tell me if you guys think I'm wrong, but and I, I just thought about this a minute ago. You could see Manchin maybe win Utah. That is a Trump skeptical state that probably doesn't like, mm-hmm. um, you know, Biden that, you know, that he's at least where the vibes are of, of, you know, of sort of a, a, a truly sort of center right state at this point that is, you know, does not like acrimonious politics. You know, you could kind of, you could kind of see it. And and we get the, the real sort of, you know, the Evan McMullen trifecta where this goes to the house at some point, but I mean, it's a long way off and it's, you know, it's, you know, a, you know, a lot of things would have to fall into place. I, but I, 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 I think, let me just put it this way. I'm not saying that it's likely to happen. I'm just saying that it's more conceivable than it has ever been uh, since post Perot uh, that this ends up in the house. Uh, and that to oh, yeah. me is is something that is that that like, you know, we we've had all these different things that have never happened before happen. It feels like in American politics in the past couple of years, and uh, and this would just take the cake as being like, okay, yeah. we're just going to run through all of the different, uh, you know, weird do <laughs> for this. See, thing. And so we, one, yeah. one, let, let me throw out one other state where I think that would be interesting today is Alaska, where one of his best friends, yeah. Lisa Murkowski you know, was able to win a write-in election with the last name Murkowski, mm-hmm. um, where I, Joe, Joe Manchin's vibes feel like pretty Alaska. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, RFK, and I, RFK could win Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> or Massachusetts, maybe. Well, so the one thing I would say is, and we need a, a real nerd, bring in a nerd guest onto the podcast to figure this out. But my instinct is actually that it's likelier to go to the house if it's a two-way race on most ballots um, because people, you can futz around with a 538 to win map and get to electoral ties. And, you know, we've been practically speaking much closer to that in the last two elections um, than in, in, in some of the past. I think when you add more candidates because we're first past the post and you can win states, you saw Clinton, Clinton Bush and, and Perot in 92, you know, you can win states with 38, 40 percent of the vote in that state. I actually think that that leads to more electoral blowouts, even if popular votes are much closer, as we saw with Perot, who won 15, 16 percent of the popular vote and, and didn't take many electoral votes. I think he took three, uh, if I recall correctly, in 92 and then none in 96. But anyway, so I actually think it becomes less likely to go to the House if you have more candidates, but we would need a Nate Silver nerd type to actually crunch those numbers. Well, we'll we'll, we'll definitely have to circle back and, and do that in the future because I think this is not going to go away as an issue. Uh, this has been Thunderdome for Dan, for John. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another one of our uh, episodes going through this incredibly insane 2024 uh, election, and we will be back next week with more. Check out everything that we've got at the Spectator dot com uh, on this and many other topics we have a new issue out uh, including my feature article on everything that happened in october that resulted in the new speakership after uh, matt gates decided to shiv kevin mccarthy so you can check that out at the spectator.com talk to you next week 